0: Welcome to this episode of the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. Here is your host, Pastor Eric Stillman. If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to it whichever way you normally do, whether that's your phone and your Bible app, or, or if you have a, have a Bible. I'm going to be reading from 1 Peter uh, chapter number 1 uh, this morning. And I invite, I always encourage people to, to read along, look, look in the scriptures with us if you can. Um, if not, you can listen this morning. It's good to be back here. I want to thank Pastor Eric uh, for giving me the opportunity to, to bring the Word of God to you this morning and to those who are watching um, online. Uh, it is a privilege to be able to open the Word of God and to look at it together and to have the Holy Spirit uh, use the word and teach us this morning. Uh, I do want to read this passage, and then we'll we'll ask um, God to move in our hearts with it. But 1 Peter chapter number 1, verses 1 through 16. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithyn- Bith- Bithynia. I had to practice all that. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit in heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter that Peter, one of your apostles, penned to the church that had been scattered all over Asia Minor because of the persecution that they were facing. And that you, you, through Peter, reminded them of the great work that you have already accomplished. And you challenged and inspired this early church to remain steadfast and unmovable in their faith, even in the midst of great struggle reminding them to focus on the promises of God and the future that he has already secured for his church. So I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would take this passage of Scripture and that, that Lord, you would, you would use it in each one of our lives, specifically in the circumstances that we face on a daily basis. Each person here with a unique story, a unique set of circumstances, a unique walk, a unique family, and yet one body in Christ. We thank you for, your, for the power of your Holy Spirit to be able to apply your word to each of us. And I just ask you to do that this morning to, to my life and to the lives of everyone here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is clear from the first few verses of this book to whom Peter is writing his letter. I really did have to practice some of those uh, pronunciations, and I'm sure still not sure I got all of them all of them correct. But this is modern day Turkey area uh, to kind of put that into perspective. Many of the the early Believers in the Church of Jerusalem, when they when when Christ first ascended into heaven, the early church kind of met there, and then persecution came by the will of God and caused them to spread out and disperse and take the gospel and the good news um, everywhere that they went. But it was not without grief and pain and suffering. And one of the things that drew me to this passage was was the topic of suffering. In, in my years in ministry, one of the major obstacles that folks have shared with me to becoming Christians or to staying steadfast in their faith, staying connected with the church, one of those obstacles has been suffering. We're often tempted if we're trying to live a godly life and something tragic happens. If you're normal, most of you look pretty normal to me, we ask the question, why? Why me? Why this? Why this disease? Why Why this loss? Why? Why this death? We ask those questions. How does a good God allow suffering? You know, Peter is writing to a people who were suffering. And he challenges them to be holy. He challenges them to to rejoice in their trials. And on the surface, if we don't dig a little bit into that, we we can... we can really hear crazy there because it's kind of like, uh, to, to, to just illustrate this in a humorous way, you know, you're, any of you who've dealt with building anything, construction of any sort, you know, there are two sets of nails involved in every construction project. The ones that hold the wood together and the ones that are on your hands. And when you hit the wrong nail, you know it, if you know what I mean. If you've ever smashed a finger while using a hammer and there's pain, right? Instant. I mean, instant. You know it right away. That's temporary, right? Most of us don't struggle with the temporary things. We know they're going away, it'll heal. It's Okay, we don't question God when we hit the wrong nail. Usually we look at ourselves and say, Mel, what did you do that for? What were you thinking? How did you miss? You've driven hundreds of nails in your lifetime. How did you miss and hit your thumb rather than the nail? So we look at ourselves when we make mistakes like that. But when there are things we can't control... Like persecution. Like someone mocking you at work because you're one of those Christians, really? Like, I mean, haven't you evolved past that? I mean, our culture today is really good at trying to make people of faith feel stupid. We face some persecution. Persecution. And we we can't really do anything about that, can we? But we can look at the scriptures and know that our Savior, Jesus Christ, suffered persecution. It's not that God has not been through what we as believers face. On the contrary, he has been through some of the greatest sorrows one can ever know. The loss of a child. That one hits home for me because my son's five months old. And you know, I can read in Scripture that God gave his only son to perish on my, on my behalf, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life and think, yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't want my son to do that but God did. God knows what it's like to have the closest of friends betray him and run. The author of this book betrayed Jesus three times with an eyesight and hearing and then met the eyes of the one he betrayed. God knows suffering. He knows those losses and those pains. So what I want us to get is one point today. One thing I want you to take away from today. What will motivate me as a Christian to be holy and to endure suffering with rejoicing? What would motivate me to look crazy in the eyes of the world that I would see my suffering as opportunities for God to be glorified? That was what our our passage said that that ultimately it would be for his glory. said through you th- through you th- though you do not see him you believe in him and rejoice with joy and inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls we look forward we set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought you at the revelation of Jesus Christ what causes a person to have this perspective that I want to be so like my God that I would examine my choices to see whether they're holy or not. What would cause us to pause in the middle of our suffering and say, you know what, I may not comprehend this, but I trust a God who has suffered like me to have a purpose in it. What would cause us to respond that way instead of with bitterness or doubt or abandonment? Because I don't know about you, when I read this, I want to be this kind of Christian. I want to be the kind of Christian who is motivated deep within my soul from a place of conviction and value to be like my God. I want to be someone who can rise above their suffering and allow God to use it for good. I want to be that kind of believer on the same page with God. You know, there are several other other. Uh, authors of the New Testament who have written similar passages in, in regards to like holiness. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul uh, said this, Assuming that you have heard about him, Jesus, and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, well, I want to be that kind of believer, but what will motivate me to be conscious of putting off the old and embracing the new? Putting off the old man I was and embracing the new creation that God has made me in Jesus. What will motivate that? In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 put it this way. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with it with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The cross wasn't his joy. It was the joy that was set before him. You know what that joy was? To put it in another picture that Paul Paul gives us, it was a marriage feast. When Jesus the bridegroom would be joined with his bride, Jesus was looking for the day when all who believed in him would be united with him. So he endured the cross. He gives us the example of the mindset we need. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. How are we to be motivated for holiness? How are we to endure and persevere through suffering? In Ephesians chapter number 2, Paul gives us a summary of his motivation. When he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. I believe it's in Philippians that Paul says, the love of Christ constrains me. It compels me. That that word in the Greek literally means to push and to pull at the same time. Like he just cannot get away from it. It's like a, a chain that's wrapped around him that's pulling him and pushing him along. He is constrained by the love of Christ. He cannot shake it. He cannot deny it. It is so evident and so obvious that he cannot forget. Three words. God. Loves me. You see, Peter wrote this book. Following an experience with Jesus. After his betrayal, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus meets his disciples on the shore. He tells them, He he, he appears to them one time and says to them, Peter's not with them. He says, I'm going to meet you at the Sea of Galilee. Come and tell Peter. He singled Peter out. And when Peter met Jesus face to face again on that shoreline, three times Jesus said, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Peter? Feed my lambs. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. You know what Peter needed to be motivated to preach the great sermon on Pentecost when 3,000 plus souls came to Christ? Do you know what Peter needed in order to pen this book, 1 Peter and, and later on 2 Peter, to, the, to this group of people who were scattered all over, who needed inspiration, who needed encouragement, who needed someone to come alongside of them and say, persevere and endure and continue to be holy. It was the fact that he couldn't shake, that God loves Me. That God is a personal God. That when He says, I so loved the world that I gave my only son, that He wasn't thinking big categorical, you know, in general, that no, God's capacity to think about multiple people at the same time transcends any of us. Because He had you. And he had me in mind when he went to the cross. He became your sin and my sin so we could be made in his righteousness. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church Jesus became my sin and then gave me his righteousness. So our being holy doesn't make us righteous. Our being holy is just us being who we already are. How do you improve on the righteousness of Christ that you've been clothed in already? You can't improve that. You can't make it better. So it's not laws and rules that help us or motivate us. Not in this arena. What motivates godly decision-making? What motivates rejoicing and suffering has nothing to do with rules and duty. It has everything to do with love. Everything to do with love. In verse 8, it says, though you have not seen him, in our passage in 1 Peter 1, though you have not seen him, you love him. You say, oh, I get it. What will motivate me to, to, to being godly? And what will motivate me to endure suffering is because I love Jesus. No, that's not quite right. God sees that we love him when we do that. But what motivates us to love him one of Jesus' other disciples said, we love him because he first loved us. So that one point again, God loves me. That's what motivates holiness. You know, I, I, growing up, I grew up in a Christian home, and, and, I, and, and it's, this was an old, I would say, an old-fashioned conservative Christian home. In other words, I got disciplined. I got spanked in the place that God designed you to be spanked every so often because I got in trouble. I didn't get in a lot of trouble, but I got in enough trouble to know. My parents taught me that there's consequences when you make bad decisions So my motivation to making good decisions early in my life wasn't necessarily because God loves me. It was more about I don't want to hurt. It was more about I'm afraid of A, B, or C. And you know the Bible in the Old Testament talks a lot about fearing the Lord. And most of the time it's talking about having such an awe of God that you refuse to allow yourself space to hurt him. Does that make sense? I first began to understand this concept of fearing God as I as I became a young teenager. And my mom is one of those moms who doesn't get angry when you do wrong. She cries. And God bless her for having that gift. Because there is nothing that will tear your heart out more than when you know someone loves you and they weep because you've done something that hurts. Did you know the Bible tells us we can grieve the Spirit of God? He so loves us. He so wants us to live who he's declared that we are. You are holy, it says. God declared us holy. God clothed us in the righteousness of Christ when we put our faith and our trust in him. And he so wants us to live it. Not because we're terrified of him. There were times I did the right thing. Ever do the right thing for the wrong reasons? It might count somewhere out in the world. You know, maybe at work or whatever. You sometimes do the right thing because you, you, you know you're going to get rewarded. You know, it's like... It's like... I, I, my, I, I, my parents sent me to a Christian school. And every year they, they would give out the Christian Citizenship Award. You know, to the youth who had... To the boy or girl who had, had modeled Christ... And the teachers all voted on it, but for some reason the student body didn't get to vote on that because I'm pretty sure they would have chosen someone else. You know. But, but there were people who would compete for that and try to win the trophy. And I think sometimes we approach our Christian life like that. I do right because I think good things are going to happen. And God's going to give me some cookies and some carrots if for those of you who are vegetarian. You know, we act like God, and God is a good, is a gift giver. The Bible tells us that. But sometimes we can get caught up in like, I just want a reward. And we get crushed when we do the right thing and something bad happens. Because that isn't why. That isn't what motivates us in this arena. It is that God loves me. Now, are we going to be rewarded? Absolutely. This passage talked about, you know, the future, hope of our salvation and the glory yet to come. We know that. But I don't think we want to live our Christian lives because we're going to get rewarded. In Luke chapter 7, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table with, with him. And a woman of the city who was a sinner, some believe Mary Magdalene from another passage that's related to this in the Gospels, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment that was worth like a year's wage. So just imagine that, right? You got something that is worth one year's salary. Okay. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw it, he said to himself, <laughs> quietly, have you ever grumbled when you see somebody do something, but it's kind of internal, but, some, but your face betrays you? Well, Well, with Jesus in the room, your face didn't even need to betray you because he already knew your thoughts. That's kind of cool. But he says to himself, thinking like nobody's going to know I'm thinking this, if this man were a prophet, if Jesus were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Have you ever had that attitude? Well, that person sure got what they had coming. And we kind of rejoice a little bit in that. Okay, maybe you don't. Maybe I do. I don't know. But I've had some of these thoughts like this. Jesus answered, to, answered Simon. He was the Pharisee. He said, I have something to say to you. I've had a few moments and experiences in my Christian life where I felt like God was talking to me. Usually it was in a corrective, convicting sort of a way. Like, I have something to say to you. He... he Yes, Simon, being a religious Pharisee, he said, say on, teacher. So he tells a story. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. It's like saying somebody owed me 50,000 and another person owed me five, five grand. Kind of to put it in perspective. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love more? Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little, and he said to her, "Your sins are forgiven." You know what motivates us for holiness is remembering our former self or the potential for sinfulness and wickedness that rely, that that, that Lies within each of us and how God has redeemed us from it. We forget sometimes that we've been forgiven much. When when Paul said, You, you, Jesus, became my sin, it wasn't the, the little ones. It was the big ones, like when he stood and held the coats of those who martyred Stephen. We forget that we would be the same. We forget our sin and the potential to sin that lies within us. And it's easy for us to look at the news and see some of these mass shootings and extreme things and when these people get caught and they go to jail for the rest of their lives to say, yeah, they got what was coming and they deserve more. Forgetting that we've been forgiven. And if we realize how much we've been forgiven our capacity to love him back grows. Our ability is empowered to be holy and the capacity to rejoice in the middle of suffering rises to the surface and allows us to praise God the way Job did. The Lord gives, the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because we exist for his honor and glory. Real quickly when we look at our passage we're reminded what God has done in verses 1 through 5. He elects his people by his foreknowledge. He's sanctified his people by his spirit. By his mercy in verses 3 to 5 he has caused his people to be born again to a living hope. Provided his people with a pure and permanent inheritance. He has guarded his people by by his own power. He has provided witnesses through the prophets of the Old Testament who prophesied of the grace of Christ that would be ours. He has sent preachers to share the gospel with us. Why? Because we need it. Because if we remember what we were, we were ignorant, bound by our passions in darkness. We were children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in his mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, saved us, and redeemed us. And so when we get to the practical part of this passage of, you know, hey, what what what's our response going to be to that one point that God loves me? It can be obedience to Christ in verse 2. It's enduring and rejoicing in our trials and testings, verse 6 and 7. It's loving him, believing in him, and rejoicing in him in verse 8. It is preparing our minds for action, and it is refusing to be what we were. And choosing to be who we are. We've got to know that though. And believe it. Who are you? Our world can't even define what a woman is. But our scriptures and our God has been very clear. About who his his people are. They are holy. Holy. They are righteous. They are high priests before God. They are sanctified and set apart. They are redeemed, they are adopted. They are they are the children of God. Christians should know who they are. We know who we are. We don't make ourselves holy by being obedient. As I already mentioned, we're holy because God declared us to be holy. We do these things because we are motivated by His love and what He has done for us. These things are simply our response. Do you know that God loves you? Do you believe? That God loves you. Are you willing to put your name. In some of those familiar verses. Like John 3.16. For God so loved. Me. That he gave his only son. That if I believe in him. I will not perish. But have everlasting life. Will you really take the time. To face God and listen to Him tell you that He loves you. And will you love Him? Will you love Him? That is the motivation of holiness. And that is what allows us to endure with rejoicing all of our sufferings. That God loves me and I love him. You know, we sing many songs that remind us of this all the time. Whether it's hymns like, And Can It Be? Whether it's, Think About His Love, a chorus. Or, Oh, How He Loves You and Me. Or songs or hymns of the faith, like Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Are those just words? Or do we really understand that when we sing them, we are declaring our devotion and our love for a God who said first, I love you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. And I pray that you would, you would cause us to remember these three words, God loves me. We tell our spouses, I love you, and we hear, I love you too. And I often wonder how much you long to hear. We love you. I love you. And therefore I will keep your commandments. Not because I want to earn anything or have some kind of reputation or name. Or reward. Or praise. But just for your honor and glory, Lord that we love you. Help us to be motivated to be holy as you have declared us and to, and to give you honor by rejoicing and praising your name, even in the midst of our deepest sorrows, remembering that you are God, suffered and you suffer with us. You're in it with us. Help us to remember that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. We are located at 1155 Silas Dean Highway in Wethersfield, Connecticut, and can be found online at newlife-ct.org. No redistribution or use of any kind of this recording is allowed without express written consent of New Life Christian Fellowship.